and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we feature this month's policy focus entitled Crime Affects American Communities and Safety. We're going to look at the data on crime and why the surge in carjackings and high murder rates cannot be ignored. We'll also look at how women who feel particularly vulnerable have grappled with the aftermath of the defund the police mantra. Last, we're going to discuss what can be done to help build back safer, stronger communities. And here to break it all down is the author of this month's policy focus, Megan Mobs. Megan Mobs is a senior fellow at IWF and is an experienced non-governmental policy and political leader. She previously served as a presidential appointee to the United States Military Academy. She concurrently serves as VP for Client Strategies at Link, where she provides strategic advice on public affair matters. Last, she is a former paratrooper and combat veteran. Megan, thank you for your service and also joining us again on She Thinks. Thanks, Beverly, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to let people know again that the policy focus, it is called Crime Affects American Communities and Safety. As always, you can go to IWF.org to download that report and take a look at it for yourself. But we're going to dig right on in. Now, Megan, I noticed in the report, you did say that there are reasons to be optimistic. So why don't we start with the good news before we get into the bad? What has improved when it comes to crime? So what I'm really trying to say there is at first glance, like before really digging into the data, people can tout that levels of nearly all offenses from homicide to aggravated assault have shown a decline or remained relatively stable in 2023 when compared to the previous year. So when compared to 2022. Now, the problem, though, is despite this kind of drop in these crimes, all of them still re- remain remarkably higher compared to 2019, the year before the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, and then the subsequent defund the police movement. So really, things actually aren't better. They are better a little bit than last year, but they're certainly not better than they were before the pandemic. And in fact, in some areas like carjackings, they have skyrocketed. They are through the roof in many different cities across America. And I want to dig into that just a little bit. What is it about the carjackings, car theft? Why do you think we're seeing such an increase in those areas? Beverly, that's a really good question. And I really, quite frankly, haven't seen any good explanation or any good data that explains why it's happening, except for we know it is happening. So there's a 33.5% surge from 2022. That is a massive spike. And obviously, there was the very high profile carjacking of a congressman in the Navy Yard about a week and a half ago. So this is not just affecting low-income communities. It is affecting everyone, in fact. And the reality about carjacking is these often lead to more aggressive crimes, right? Because when people are taking cars, they're often not doing it unarmed. So it can lead to other really unfortunate outcomes. Well, I can't even say when I lived in Washington, D.C., and I was there during the beginning of COVID and had been there for over 20 years, after the George Floyd murder happened, that's when I started to notice a real increase in issues with my car where it got broken into three times in one month. And it wasn't just me as my neighbors as well. We just started leaving our cars unlocked and make sure nothing was in it because we don't want our windows broken. <laughs> and we we noticed this. We'd even see people going along and trying to see which doors were unlocked. A lot of times it was very young men. So it was, it, we, we saw this increase in more of what we would see as more like smaller crimes, obviously not the the larger crimes, even though those did increase. Is this something that you think can be attributed to the fact of lower police um, protection in these neighborhoods, but also younger people feeling more emboldened doing this in groups of men going around doing this type of thing? 
Beverly, that's a, first off, a great question. And I will tell you also just I live in the Northern Virginia area. I actually I've heard it from my nail tech. I've heard it from my hairstylist. They all feel increasingly less safe and do the same thing with their cars. So, again, I think this is a very widespread issue. But to get back to your point, I do think that this is more of these kind of young men looking for something. I think, unfortunately, in many of these big cities that there have not been substantial consequences for crime. I think we increasingly have these much more kind of liberal or left-leaning you know, DAs who aren't necessarily doing what's necessary to hold people accountable and causing these issues to happen. And people are not being held accountable for the crimes that are happening. So I think that's some of it. And then I certainly think that our police forces are absolutely overburdened. I think that they uh, don't have the capacity to do what is really critical. And this is something I address in the policy paper, which is kind of this community, this, this, it's called community-based policing, in which you are kind of proactively engaged with the community so that you're actually getting left of bang. You're getting proactive versus reactive to crime. But you can't do community-based policing if your police department isn't at full strength because you just don't have the capacity. And so the reality is the effect of the defund police movement means less police on our street, less capable of being proactive and having to be reactive. And and we know that the defund the police movement was a big thing a few years ago, again, right after the George Floyd murder took place. Where are things today? Are cities slowly funding their police departments more, even if that doesn't make the big headlines and make the big news? So I think some of it is, yes. And I also want to correct myself earlier. I said more more liberal DAs and what I meant was more liberal prosecutors. Um, And so I I do think that some of that. So I do think that there are many communities that are very much attempting to fund as much as possible. And I get in this a little bit in the policy paper. This used to be very much a bipartisan issue. In fact, under President Clinton's administration, he launched this massive initiative called COPS. And it was an acronym, and I'm going to not even try to say what the acronym stands for right now, except for it really was this massive influx of cash, not into just kind of federal law enforcement agencies, but at the local level, understanding that most of crime is happening in communities. It's at the local level, and that's where they need to be funded the most. And let's talk about the difference between the crime rates that you're seeing in large cities like a Washington, D.C., which we just mentioned, a New York City, a Chicago. We often think of those cities as being these crime hubs. But are we seeing this filtering into smaller cities, into towns? Is there a ripple effect that we're seeing all across the country? So certainly you're starting to see this kind of, you know, kind of radiating effect in which you are seeing it kind of happen in big cities kind of as the origin point, but beginning to trickle out into kind of where you would call the suburbs. So more of kind of the suburban region, you're beginning to see increased crime happen in those areas. And, and the other thing is that's something we didn't address in the paper, but certainly you're beginning to see a substantial increase in drugs and fentanyl, which has been discussed quite frequently, is impacting all of our communities from very small towns to very big cities. So you are beginning to see all of this trickle out from, from those big cities into what used to be perceived as more safer areas in America. And what specific things, policies have mayors done, have cities done, city officials to try to prevent some of these crimes? Uh, For example, car theft, which we talked about, the carjacking, has any of it worked? So unfortunately, and again, I address this in the policy paper, you know, you've had like a Mayor Adams in New York who decided that it was a good idea to give out air tags to people and say, like, leave these in your car and at least we'll be able to locate the vehicle afterwards. Well, well, clearly that that's not going to work. Right. Effectively, you're doing nothing. You're you're not you're not dissuading people from committing the crime and you're certainly helping not address the, the crime. I think that what mayors should be doing and what some I hopeful are doing are really focusing again on making sure that their 
local law enforcement are at full strength and not just at full strength, but equipping them to do that more proactive community-based policing, getting out and building trust and rapport with the community that, that they serve. And that part right there is so critical because there is pretty bipartisan consensus around some police reforms that need to happen, like body cameras, things like that. But that ultimately, especially in vulnerable communities, they appreciate police there. They want police there because it does allow them to feel safe and it does allow them to prosper more. When you have these towns or these you know, cities that are crime ridden, well, they're not as economically prosperous, which means people don't have opportunities. So there is this trickle down effect that can occur. So mayors that are being proactive, ensuring their police forces have funding and are supported by their communities are going to naturally see much better outcomes. And what are we seeing with the retention rate of police officers? I know during COVID, there were a lot of retirements, early retirements. Are we seeing young Americans wanting to be part of their local police force, or is it hard to recruit people these days? So many, many police force across the nation are grappling with this issue. So it's not just a decline in recruitments, but it's actually an increase in resignations and retirements. And we're not recruiting enough to fill those who are saying, I'm done. I've had enough. I'm either retiring early or I'm resigning. And so they and resignations are some of the biggest surges that we're seeing across law enforcement agencies by nearly 50% in 2022 compared to figures from 2019. So the reality is it's not just recruitment issues, which we're certainly we're seeing. And I addressed this previously when we were together about in the military, we are seeing it in law enforcement as well. But it's that other piece that resignations and retirements that are compounding the issue. And so I want to talk about just what does this do to the American psyche? How are Americans feel feeling when they don't feel safe, especially when we think about your kids being out there? Um, what does this do to our communities and how we feel about them? So safety is one of the most critical. And so in a past life, I earned my PhD in clinical psychology. So when I say this, I'm coming from a truly a place of really imparting how critical safety is to our mental well-being, to our ability to thrive. That is such a very primitive part of being a human being is feeling safe. And when we don't feel safe, it impacts all sorts of outcomes across all different factors of well-being. And the fact is, Americans aren't feeling safe right now. And it's so I think I referenced this in the paper itself. There was a Gallup poll that looked at it. 50% of Americans, 50, 56%, I think, or in that range, believe that crime has increased. But the more market and more kind of impressive number, and not in a good way, in a bad way, is that 78% feel that crime is driven across the country. And that is a significant amount of people who believe that crime is rampant. And then they have, they feel less safe as a result. And that leads again to all sorts of outcomes related to mental well-being and also participation. When you don't feel safe in your community, you're less likely to engage in civic action. You're less likely to go out to the economy. So it does again have these trickle down effects across all of these different arenas. Now, you share with us the data, and again, that's outlined in the report, but do you blame 24-hour news coverage at all of the fact that sensationalizing stories does get more viewers? Is part of this just how often we cover it, the way we cover stories, or is is the coverage just a true reflection of what we're seeing? You know, I think, Beverly, it's a great question, and I do think it's a bit of both, right? I do think that we are more naturally, right? There is an incentive to the media to, you know, there's obviously the age-old axiom about if it bleeds, it leads. Certainly, there is some of that in media. Sensationalism draws clicks, it draws eyeballs, it draws dollars. So there is that issue, and that doesn't obscure the fact that the data is clearly showing that 
crime has increased. Crime is happening. So it is both of them. And I do think the public has and should be informed about crime in their their areas. So I'm not really sure if this is a kind of a chicken and egg issue, I think, but I do think it is a bit of both. I will say what I do know is that when Americans, when people hyper consume a lot of that whether it's the 24-hour news cycle or watching or kind of going down the rabbit holes um, on social media or in the media, it can affect their mental health over time as well. Well, I want to talk about women as well, because you focus on them in this policy report. Women, of course, feel vulnerable when there are male criminals out there committing crimes, of course, the elderly as well. But we think of women as a vulnerable population and understandably so. Women have responded in their own way. You talked about gun purchases among women. What is the data? So first of all, I want to say, too, that really only two in 10 Americans trust in the government to do what's right. Now, typically law enforcement isn't necessarily folded up underneath that. They kind of break out separately. But I think this is the reason why I'm introducing that statistic, because I think that's important because most people feel that the government isn't actually equipped to protect them. So they are, to your point, kind of taking matters into their own hands. And so what we're seeing is a huge increase in women purchasing firearms. And in fact, one of the biggest increasing groups is Black women fearing for their safety and going out and taking matters into their own hands by purchasing firearms. And I think this is actually a fantastic thing. I think that really women taking responsibility for their own safety, for their own security, especially when they don't feel safe, is paramount. Now, that doesn't certainly mean that I uh, endorse the fact that I think that our government is failing to make citizens feel safe. I mean that I think it is very impressive that women are saying, okay, well, if the government's not going to do it for me, I'm going to go ahead and do it for myself. And one thing I think is interesting is you see this increase of gun ownership by women, but this comes at the same time. You have often local officials, state officials, but definitely federal officials from the president on down who are talking about gun control. Why is the gun control message not sinking in to even, like you were saying, um, black American women who are feeling like they need to go out there and get a gun on their own? I don't know. I oftentimes feel like that kind of narrative at that level is completely disconnected from the reality of the of most people's lives, of what they're feeling in their lives and what they're doing for their own safety. And so when they talk about that, I think that they're not taking into account just how active women have been. They're the kind of the one of the biggest subset growing consumers of firearms. And this isn't because they're obviously going out to do nefarious things. It's because they recognize this is both their right, that they have the right to own a firearm, and that they're doing so to protect themselves and their loved ones. And one of the things I get into in the policy paper is the level of femicide. So the intentional murder of women because of their gender is often associated with countries that, you know, kind of countries that don't have high socioeconomic status, kind of, you know, second or third world countries. But the reality is the United States ranks 34th for intentional female homicides, meaning women being killed just for being women. And so when people talk about federal gun control, they are certainly not looking at the subset of women who are being killed oftentimes by a partner and need have a requirement to feel safe. Well, before I continue my conversation with Megan, I do want to take a moment to ask you, our audience, a question. Are you sick of the extremes in politics? Do you want a fresh look at the policies impacting you most from a nuanced perspective? Well, then I got a show for you. Every Wednesday morning, the Base Politics podcast is tackling the top stories of the week and helping listeners keep up with our swiftly moving political landscape. Hosted by Hannah Cox and Brad Palumbo, the Base Politics show is dedicated to teaching you how to think, not what to think. You can find it on your favorite podcast platform by searching base politics or going to basepolitics.com to learn more. 
Now, Megan, I want to get back to something that you were mentioning earlier, which is the importance of communities and vibrant communities. This crime has a ripple effect where communities aren't as close because people aren't going out and participating in the economy as much. Maybe you opt to, uh, I'm not going to go out on a Friday night like I would before. How can you see crime directly impacting communities? And when we don't have community, what does that mean? So I think it's, again, one of those things that's where it's really a little bit unsure where it's a chicken and egg issue, whether it was kind of the dissolution of communities in America that is causing crime or the other way around, whether it's crime that is causing the dissolution of community. And when I say community here, I don't actually mean like the physical structure of community. What I mean is that there's a this, I reference this again in the policy paper, a book called The Vanishing Neighbor. And really what he's talking about is he, he kind of outlines this idea that in America or in most countries, there really is three levels of relationship. And you, if you think of it as concentric circles, the innermost circle is comprised of those very deep personal relationships, your family, your closest friends, those who you have the kind of very intimate connections with. And then the outermost, the kind of ex most external ring would be like expanded social media, acquaintances. And so you're kind of connected, but really superficially on shared interests and oftentimes in a distant fashion. So again, through social media or some other mechanism. But it's that kind of internal circle. So you have your closest one there. That's your biggest one. But that second one, the middle circle, is really composed of those casual relationships. So I mentioned my hairstylist earlier, your nail tech, your neighbors. It's those people that you see kind of often in your lives, but maybe don't have a super intimate relationship with. But that middle ring historically has served as a major binding factor in communities. It provides opportunities for genuine interaction, the sharing of ideas, the development of mutual trust, relationships, feelings of protectiveness for one another because you have that shared sense. But that is declining. That inner circle, people engaging there, is now in decline. And so as a result, there really isn't that necessarily that pull to say, well, this is my community. I want to take responsibility for it. Or this is my neighbor. I want to take responsibility for my neighbor. And so Again, as a result, crime either, either might be proliferating or that dissolution of that inner circle is what is allowing crime to pr proliferate. But either way, I think what's very clear is we have to, again, focus on what it means to build communities in America. Again, not buildings, not geographic spaces necessarily, but relationships, relationships with our neighbors who maybe we don't agree with. And that's actually OK. What we know is that, that kind of like serendipity of bumping into one another in that middle circle of relationships is incredibly important for many, many different things related to a healthy society. And just as you're talking about that, it made me think of something that I think is a, a tragic trend that we see, which is if let's say somebody is riding public transportation, a woman gets attacked, not many people join in to help her. Often people are even recording it while it's happening, where I, I would even think when I was young in D.C., I would purposely walk near men or groups of people when I was leaving the metro because I knew if something happened, at least there'd be people around me to help me. That We seem to have lost that as a society. Is that any thoughts that you have on that? So there is something that in psychology called the bystander effect, which means that people kind of don't engage because they think someone else is going to. So they're not going to intervene because they're actually waiting for someone else to, or they are they have the assumption that someone else is going to do so. So they kind of are happy to put themselves in that bystander role. I think that that happens some of the time. I actually think it's more nefarious than that. I think what's happening is people have seen what happens, the consequence of them engaging, like a lawsuit against them or being vilified on social media or losing their job preemptively because they do engage, that people are more apt to say, well, 
not my problem. Again, kind of that piece of community, but also because the repercussions have seemed to be if you engage, if you try to save someone, then you may actually be vilified as a result. So I do think it's a bit of both that kind of bystander effect, but also the very unfortunate reality for those that have tried to intervene have then been the ones who have been the most vilified in the media, not the person perpetuating the crime. So let's get into my final question, which is, you've already said some of these, so it could be a summary, but what do we do? So as people are concerned about their communities, the crime in their communities, obviously people can vote, but when you're looking at policies that really help, can you summarize those for us again so that people can figure out how how to actually solve this problem? First of all, I always think I want to leave with this anytime I'm talking about any policy is we have to get back to this idea that America is an amazing place to be. Yes, clearly we're talking about some major issues, but that love of country, that patriotism, that belief that that our country, our community is worth fighting for. And that doesn't mean abroad necessarily. Sometimes that means at home. We have to reinstill that when people take pride in their community and in their country. Well, then, of course, they're going to do things to improve it. So that's more of just a general philosophical orientation that I approach everything with. But of course, we have to really focus on some kind of crucial police reforms. Clearly, I think the most important thing is that we establish that police is incredibly important. Law enforcement do yeoman's work on so many different things, and we have to support them. And then we have to reach bipartisan consensus on all of it. Yes, of course, there can be improvements and reforms and all of that. But ultimately, we have to reaffirm our commitment to law enforcement and allow them to do their jobs, but then also really encourage local law enforcement You know, and mayors, like you mentioned earlier, to really ensure that their police are at full strength so that they can do what we know is that really data-driven, effective, proactive community-based policing. So that would be one of the major, major policy recommendations that I would have. Well, it is an important policy report this this month because it's something that affects everyone. Once again, it is called Crime Affects American Communities and Safety. You can find it at IWF.org. Megan Mobs, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Beverly. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, IWF does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting IWF.org backslash donate. That's IWF.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review. It does help, and we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She Thinks. From all of us here at IWF, Thanks for watching.